The more thoroughly good classical music podcasts I make, the more I learn about a subject which not only yields more and more, but also satisfies both the mind and the soul. A lot of that is down to what these podcasts are, a chance to speak to practitioners about their work, in effect compensating for years of missed opportunities on my part by now living vicariously through the life and experiences of artists. Recent episodes, including that with pianist Peter Donohoe or the podcast spotlighting the work of composer Danny Howard, are good examples. This one, Podcast 34, does the job well too. It's largely about the Holy Week Festival at St John Smith Square in London. Visit sjss.org.uk for more information about that festival, which runs from the 14th to the 20th of April. The podcast features contributions from, in order of appearance, composer James McMillan, who celebrates his 60th birthday this year, and tenebrae conductor Nigel Short, both of whom appear with other artists and ensembles at the festival. The podcast also includes a cheeky bonus follow-up question I've wanted to ask Nigel for at least a year now. He was game. It's always rather lovely to nerd out from time to time, I find. Be sure to listen out for the bass notes. Well, the whole festival itself is of immense importance to me because, um, first of all, it's it's a festival put together by Tenebrae, this wonderful choir conducted by Nigel Short. But the fact that he's in, he invites all these other choral groups in to share the platform with his choir uh, is wonderful. And it's a collection of some of the best choirs in the United Kingdom. And the fact that they're focusing on a lot of my music this year to mark my 60th birthday is very exciting for me. Obviously, I'm involved as a conductor in one of them. I'm conducting the BBC Singers um, in a mixed programme of some of my motets and and Gesualdo's uh, Tenebrae Responsories um, on the, um, the Thursday night in St John Smith Square. But... There also there's a performance of my Seven Last Words, which is going to be conducted by Nigel Short that week as well um, on the Friday, Friday evening, uh, with the Britain Symphonia and and his own choir. But as well as that, you know, there's the choir of Clare College Cambridge. Um, there's the, there's a wonderful new choir called uh, uh, Sansara. Uh, I'm going to be c- conducting a. a a workshop with students of my own um, Strathclyde motets. About 60 participants will be taking part in a kind of workshop where um, young singers and and amateur singers will get to uh, um, work with me on a collection of of pieces. And so are the Marion Consort, this wonderful small group of uh, singers conducted by Rory McCleary. All the groups uh, bring their own sort of particular... Um, focus, musical focus. Uh, the Talis Scholars, obviously, um, in lots of Renaissance beautiful settings. Um, the Brodsky Quartet are coming along and they're performing um, Haydn's Seven Last Words. So it's, you know, reflections on this week from over, you know, composers from over hundreds, hundreds of years. Um, Ex Cathedra coming, doing Bach's St. Matthew Passion. Um, and then Sansara have, have come up with a, a very interesting programme which sort of puts music by Sir James Macmillan alongside that of some Scandinavian um, composers and the, the sort of r- similarities uh, really linked by their shared encounters throughout history um, with 
Celtic traditions and so forth, um, and an element of folk music, I think, is fascinating. Um, and then, uh, obviously, the BBC singers performing music by James McMillan, and we will sing um, his seven last words. And that's that's actually following um, Stephen Layton and uh, Polyphony's performance of uh, Bach's John Passion. And that in itself um, has become a sort of regular focus in the London diary uh, for Holy Week. Um, but I think that the Bach Passion, followed by um, Joseph Millen's seven last words, will be, you know, pretty... Well, it's about as intense as it gets all week, I think. Seven Last Words is a piece I wrote well over 25 years ago now. It's for choir and orchestra. It's a setting of the seven last statements um, supposedly spoken by Christ on the cross and are taken from the four Gospels. Uh, <clears throat> traditionally, it has been a kind of uh, paraliturgical um, structure made famous through Haydn's treatment uh, and reflections on, on it. But, but it's, it's a service or a, a structure that's fallen into disuse uh, in subsequent centuries. But composers are coming back to it because it is another way of telling the Passion story. Um, it's a very, a very useful way and a, a very effective way to go through the, the seven statements, as it were, uh, Christ's last word, uh, interspersed, in my case, with uh, various bits and pieces of, uh, um, of liturgical um, text as well. I was a much younger man when I wrote it. This piece dates from 1993, but I suppose that I had been circling round about these few days in, in human history, um, as composers and artists have done throughout throughout history, um, as a, a source of inspiration. Uh, the death of Christ, uh, in particular, that seems to have gripped the imagination of. Uh, composers and artists more, more than anything else, I would say, in his life, including his resurrection and birth, for example. Sometimes in pure abstract music, um, but um, 
more importantly, I suppose, in the use of very different texts. I've set two passion settings already, the St. Luke and the St. John. Uh, but the Seven Last Words, as I say, is a very different kind of way of doing it, a, a very uh, a very dramatic uh, and intense way of telling the story. And certainly when I performed the Seven Last Words from the cross before, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the only one, uh, but I'm kind of quite often just left um, on the floor by the end of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it all just reflects what's going on in the liturgy. describe his his musical language well I think it's his skill in creating something that's very um, atmospheric um, poignant but but is combined with this um, sort of element of folk music um, that, that's very captivating um, almost lulls you into a full sense of security I think but um, there's an intensity to his music that I think speaks to everybody. You'd have to be kind of, um, you know, cold as stone not to not to feel moved by uh, his writing. Um, and certainly for me, his ability to kind of build up an atmosphere over a period of time without losing your interest. You know, there are a lot of modern composers uh, whose work is sort of slightly minimalist, and and it's easy for the attention to wander. Um, and I find James's music just doesn't do that. It doesn't let you do that. And so, um, you're, you know, when he wants to finally unleash uh, some kind of grand dramatic climax on you, musical or instrumental or vocal, whatever it is, um, you, you're right in it. You're kind of living and breathing it, um, whether you're there as a performer or whether you're there as a listener. pointed the way forward to being able to consider different ways of telling the story. It kind of freed me up in, in a way. Um, I hadn't written a lot of uh, sacred music at that stage, and I hadn't written a lot of choral music, to be honest, but, but then all that changed, and I've, I've written an awful lot of choral music and sacred music in the last quarter century. I suppose at that time, uh, as a young man, I, I was a little bit nervous of laying it to the line, as, as it were. Uh, it was being argued in certain quarters of the arts that religion was passé and that it wasn't where the cutting edge was meant to be in either music or the other arts, but the tread of history has proved that this is wrong. And, and if you look at the composers, certainly of the last century or so, um, great modernist figures, 
from Stravinsky to Schoenberg to Messiaen to Arvopert, you can see a, a, a strong trend beginning to emerge that religion never went away and that the search for the sacred is just as important an aspiration amongst the composers. I think James has the ability to kind of very much um, represent the ordinary man um, and I, you know, the, the social conscience behind the man himself and his music is, is very evident. It, it, it speaks to ordinary people. And I think when, when you've got an audience there, I mean, I think Tenebrae performances generally, we try to create an intense atmosphere that an audience gets kind of hooked into. Um, and with James's music, it's, it's very easy to do that and to maintain, um, uh, an atmosphere which just doesn't let doesn't let go um, un- until you know the lights come up at the end. Obviously, the, the, there are there are uh, there are strong currents in society and in the arts, um, which I suppose um, can, can impact on young artists, especially. And and if if you're being told by the Guardian and and other newspapers that. Um, religion isn't something you're supposed to be doing, religion isn't something that uh, serious artists and composers should be pursuing. You tend to take that on board to a limited extent when you're young and lack experience or um, lack confidence. Uh, but then when you realise, when you take account of all these other composers in the 20th century especially um, who have bucked that trend, um, you, you realise there's another narrative that uh, is, is 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 much more encouraging of of the spiritual composer. My assumption is is that if you are writing religious music, then it must have to come from somewhere personal. That this is not something that uh, can be done if you don't have a sense of faith yourself. Well, uh, yes and no to that. Um, I know many of the composers that I've cited, uh, for example, were believers, maybe not necessarily conventional believers, and, and some of them were not even Christians, such as Schoenberg, who converted to a practicing Judaism after he left Germany. And then, of course, John Cage with his uh, um, experiments and investigations into Far Eastern religions. There is all of that. But, but I do know many composers, my colleagues, who tackle the, the big um, sacred structures such as the passion settings who, who are not necessarily uh, men and women of faith um, there, there has been a trend recently of setting uh, passions whether it be the St John or the St Luke or St Matthew and uh, the amount of composers who have tackled this is very interesting ranging from Wolfgang Riem in Germany to Tan Dun, the Chinese composer um, Osvaldo Gozilov, the, the Argentinian Jewish composer, uh, a whole range of people from atheists to agnostics to people of different religions. Um, uh, even even my old friend and mentor, Maxwell Davis, set the mass, and he was no friend of the church and certainly no friend of religion. So yes, in, in some cases it's important that there, there is a, 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 an instinct of faith at work, but, but um, reality proves it's not the only attraction uh, that's at, at, at work in the, in the mind of the, the, the living composer. How does it help you in your writing? Faith. Mm. I don't know if it helps, but it certainly um, provides a, a, a grounding. 
uh, it means that you're rooted in something because, because I mean, obviously with Catholicism, you're rooted in something very ancient. Um, it's a culture that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years, right into the uh, Jewish antecedents. And, and that um, grounding, uh, that sense of being rooted in something, being bound to something, uh, is paradoxically liberating. One last question just to um, uh, just to satisfy my curiosity. Didn't Tenebrae release an album on Signum last year with Schoenberg's Frieda... Alf Eden. Yes. Um, I was completely blown away by that. This is slightly disconnected from uh, the Holy Week Festival, but seeing as you're on the phone, I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, I was completely... That was the thing that hooked me into Tenebrae. There we are. That's that's the first thing you need to know. Uh, and the, the thing that I was particularly struck by as a newcomer to the sound of the chorus is the distinct sound world and the distinct sound that you create as an ensemble. And... That's not me flattering you, that's just like a statement of fact. Although I obviously I am at the same time flattering you. Um, uh, I'm, what, I'm cur- what I'm curious about, and I don't know whether it's a trade secret, but how is it that you create that sound? Because I've asked a number of people in the business, and nobody can really... <laughs> either they don't know, or they refuse to tell me. So I figured that I'd ask you. <laughs> um... It, it's not a trade secret, and you know, when I'm doing educational stuff, I'm I'm always passing on the things that I want to hear, that I like to hear, to choirs, and I, you know, I'm I'm very careful never to say, look, this is the way it should be done. It's just the way I like it. 
things to be done. Um, I'm very lucky in that I have a team of professional singers that are willing to bend and be as flexible as possible. Um, and I think that's, that's uh, actually a massive part of the success of Tenebrae and in creating um, the choral sound. And it's interesting you say this because we, we go all over the world and people say, look, we, we put on the radio, we can instantly tell if it's Tenebrae. Um, which is very nice. It's, it's, you know, as you say, it's very flattering. I think what I, I work with the singers from the perspective rather than as a conductor, but as a singer myself. So um, I'm very specific about how the words are formed. Uh, and I go into real detail about how the length of a consonant, the particular, um, now this will sound a bit technical, but the typical, the height of a vowel or the brightness or the steely quality of timbre that everybody is doing the same thing um and it, uh, you know, no conductor can demonstrate all that with their hands no matter how brilliant a conductor you are you can't show these things so once i've described it to the singers i i have to have them working as an ensemble musician and they all have to listen for it they have to hear it and they have to adapt to it as it's happening um Actually, I, 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 I wonder whether actually you've, you've answered my question. Well, obviously you've answered my question on some level, but I mean, in terms of um, it is the fact that the consonants are sort of, they're in the background or they get the consonants are very, are very low key, which is why you always hear vowels. And well, you don't, you I mean, that's kind of what I hear anyway, sorry. Yeah, you don't need to spit out the consonants if you've got 17 singers doing them very you know completely together yes. and sometimes for the text and for the mood of a piece you don't want you know it's just not right to spit the consonants out but uh, they need to be there and they, they need to be absolutely together the other thing to say is i'm i'm always very meticulous about balance we in this country in the in the uk with cathedral choirs and church choirs we've grown up um being used to hearing a very very dominant top line um, and that's the same for call societies, uh, church choirs. You know, you've got 20 odd boys and girls in the top line, and then a handful of altos, tens, and basses. Um, but thanks to my time in the King Singers, I I got used to um, a different balance, and I just found it um, fascinating that I could always hear everything in the texture right down to the bottom note. And that's what, what that group particularly focused on um, for the audience to be able to hear. And I thought, gosh, no choir does that. You just have a dominant top line and then it's, you know, altos, tenors and basses basically churning the sound out at whatever level they possibly can to, to make the notes heard. And, and so I decided that uh, I would always have an extra bass, an extra low bass, um, and then the other voices are, to a degree, they're, they're a little bit lighter as they get higher um, and cleaner sounds, so purer sounds, if you like. And then that way, an audience can always hear everything right to the lowest note, even if it's a, a loud chord and the high voices are singing quite strongly. It's got to be balanced. Um, and that, for the singers, uh, so they tell me, makes, makes it a, f a hell of a lot easier to sing with really accurate intonation. Um, when you have a dominant top line and it overbalances the lower parts, then um, intonation becomes more difficult. And then chords don't ring. Um, and tenebrae, are, you know, we're not a big choir, we're only 19 singers. But time and time again, when we go to places, people say, 
how can this small, relatively small choir generate such a powerful sound? And it's partly because we're we're singing incredibly in tune, and when a chord is really in tune and balanced, it creates harmonics, and that magnifies the sound. It gets the sound travelling through the air much quicker. So, you know, slightly scientific. Um, but it also, for me, as a as a listener, it creates something that is that feels. This will sound slightly odd, but it feels slightly more human. Uh, an odd thing to say, given that choirs obviously made up of humans. But but there is a there is a human quality to the ensemble, which I imagine when it comes to um, religious texts or uh, liturgical texts is is a makes for a really powerful combination. Yeah, well, it, it, that's interesting you say that because I I always want to hear singers breathing. You know, I, um, even though when I was a singer, you know, I had a, I had a teacher sort of saying, you know, don't don't gasp for breath there, whatever. But actually, I when I listen to recordings, I find it kind of odd if I don't hear a group or a choir or a singer breathe before they sing. It's taking away a very human element of, of what you're doing. It's sort of, you know, that moment before you sing, it gives you a, an idea of the intensity of, or the physicality that, that a singer is creating, is giving you. Um, and, and I think it's, it's an emotional element as well. You know, when, when you've got music that's flowing along, is it a gentle breath in between or is it actually an intense breath? Sorry, I'm just going to ask my wife to be quiet because she's singing in the background. <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine, don't worry. <laughs> Really? No, it's fine, uh-huh. really. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, the, so I, I always want to hear a choir breathe together, even if it's gently, and I think that, that's a, a human aspect of, of what we do. And, uh, as I say, listening for the change in timbre, rather than just having a group of professional singers that come along and, and they sing everything the way they want to together. Um, some people like it. You get, you know, 20-odd soloists coming together, singing in their way, and they they sing in a very committed way, but not in you know perhaps as disciplined or as focused a way as as I like. And that's where I think that is you know that's the key to Tenebrae's success is actually in having twenty odd singers that are willing to do that, everyone to bend slightly so that they're always um, bending their sound to, to do the same as the person next to them. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.